a couple of special spotlights to share as we get started uh, with our message this morning. First of all, this is Cordell Zielinski. He's just come to us from Harding University. He's working at Walmart in accounting and finance, and he was part of that record-setting Bison football team that went really deep into the playoffs this year. Cordell, are you with us this morning? All right, would you stand up for a minute? Let's welcome Cordell. Very glad to have you. Also, this is Homer Bigham, and Homer isn't able to be with us. He lives at a care facility here in town, and there's some information about Homer inside of your bulletin. If you were interested in reaching out to Homer or meeting him, the way to do that would be to reach out to those in our OWLS ministry, which is our senior care ministry, and to set up a, an opportunity to go visit with Homer. But Homer is a member of the church, and he's lived in this town for a couple of years now, and a few of us have had the opportunity to go and to visit with him and to meet him. And he likes to listen to the sermons from our church. And so Homer has actually a collection of CDs Miss Pam Davis will burn for him because he's got a CD player that he can listen to these sermons on. And he will purposefully listen to all of the old ones throughout the week, but always save one new one for Sunday morning because he wants to be able to uh, stay along with, with what we're learning here at church. And so Homer uh, is uh, a beloved brother in the Lord who would really love to get to know some of you. And I hope that you will um, take a chance to get to know him. Now let's take a moment before we get into our lesson and let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that you've brought Cordell to us and that you've brought Homer to us. And even though they're in such different stages of life and uh, of the ability to be involved at this congregation, we're grateful both to have Cordell serving here uh, with us and to be able to go out and to serve Homer and to treat him as a beloved brother in the Lord. And we pray that you would bless the lives of uh, both of those men uh, who have placed membership with us and with all of us, God, who together at this place are pursuing you and are trying to love you with our whole heart. And we're trying to allow you to get inside of our heart and to win over the parts of us that are still not wholly yours. And God, that's our prayer today. Our hope and our desire is that you would continue to transform us from the inside out, win over the places in our life that we have been holding back from you. Call us even further into a passionate and loving pursuit of you and of your truth and of your ways. God, we pray that you would give us the desire and the ability to serve you with every day that we have and with every breath that we have. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and all who agree say, amen. Today we're wrapping up our follow series, our discipleship series. And I promised you a week ago that I would not help you with the memory verse today. So, today we're going to see how much we have memorized. And here's the verse. Now, the trick is, I'm going to count to three, and then you're going to all say it together. Okay, so don't get ahead. It's, it's not... It's not right before three or right after three. It's right on three. Okay? All right. Here we go. One, two, three. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It is right after three, isn't it? Because nobody knows how to do it right on three. Let's try it one more time. Right after three. One, two, three. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. First Corinthians 11, one. Good. And so this verse has been helping us over the last few weeks 
to shape an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And I'm aware that our series has been somewhat theoretical, or it has been somewhat about ideas and principles, and we haven't been able to give a whole lot of practical application yet. But the good news is this. We're going to have a few series of sermons that follow this series, in which we're going to dive into a few very practical ways of discipleship. And so beginning next week, uh, which is the same day that we have our parent dedication for all those who gave birth to new babies in 2016, we're going to launch a series for four weeks called Leftovers, learning to give first fruits in the relationships that matter most. And this series is going to walk through several important relationships in our lives. The team is going to be teaching it together, the team of ministers. And we're going to attack some different things like parenting and being a child and romance and singleness. Some of these are very difficult and delicate topics, but they're all very important in walking in discipleship. The month to follow, we're going to have a series that I am looking forward to so much called Pilgrim Songs. And Pilgrim Songs is going to be a study of a few select psalms from the Old Testament that show us how we continue to follow God and pursue Him through some of the most traumatic ups and downs of emotions and life situations, how we continue to obey him, a long obedience in the same direction. And so these are some series that I'm hoping will continue to bless our church, as we won't be talking about discipleship so directly, but we will be talking about what the life of a disciple looks like in so many ways. Today, we're going to wrap up this initial series by talking about what might be the most important aspect or facet of discipleship. In some ways, this message, today's message, is what we've been trying to communicate each week during the last four weeks. We've talked about discipleship in several ways, about how it's like an apprenticeship. We're imitating Christ. That's the style of it or the substance of it. And how long does discipleship take? Unlike conversion, which can happen in a moment, discipleship is a practice that takes a lifetime. And so we discussed obeying a long obedience in the same direction, pursuing God. We also talked about last week the cost of discipleship and how it is so hard to maintain a balance as a Christian. How churches throughout history tend to get to the left, where grace becomes cheap. And so we believe that grace is something we've received, but we don't expect transformation. Or maybe to the right, where we believe that grace can be won by following a certain set of rules or standards, that if we simply obey God, we don't really have to love him. We just do what he says, and that's good enough. That becomes legalism. And we are trying in this church body to pursue and to follow Jesus by holding both parts of that, grace in the left hand, and obedience in the right, forgiveness and the grace of God in the left, and discipleship in the right, so that in our bodies, what we will do with our lives as we hold both principles is become people who love God more. And love, as I think we have all experienced, is something that needs both grace and diligence. Love needs both grace and a determination to be the very best that I can be. Anything less wouldn't be acceptable in our marriages, in our parenting, in our homes, in our friendships, would it, church? 
And so today there's a word from the Old Testament that we're going to use to get into this topic, to think about this most important aspect of discipleship, loving and pursuing God. There's an Old Testament word that comes up several times, but only once in the specific context that we are looking for today. This word in the Old Testament means to pursue with determination. It's the Hebrew word debak. And so this word to pursue with determination gets translated in your Bibles in a variety of ways. Sometimes pursuit isn't a happy or desirable thing. As I mentioned in the first lesson of this series, there's many ways to follow. And one of those ways that I illustrated early on was the way we imprint on someone, the way that little duck imprinted on me and followed me around to the left and to the right and everywhere. But sometimes we feel chased or pursued. Sometimes we're in fear and we're fleeing, and this is a different kind of following. And so this word, debak, to pursue with determination, comes up in the Old Testament in several passages in which people are running for their lives. And so you'll read about the Israelites after they've been unfaithful to God, and so they've lost a battle in one of their military campaigns. And they're being chased by the enemy. And the Hebrew word there is that the enemy was pursuing them with determination. And the way the NIV likes to translate that word is hot pursuit. The enemy was on their heels the enemy was chasing them with hot pursuit. Once in a while, the Israelites are faithful, and they are winning a battle, and they chase the enemy down with debak, with hot pursuit, with determination, a determination to finish the battle right now, to see it through to its end. But this word for pursuing comes up in a psalm. And the psalms, of course, capture many of the Old Testament ideas in poetry, and they help us understand them with a little bit of new perspective. And so in Psalm 63, 8, the word debak occurs again, and here the psalmist writes that my soul pursues you, God. My soul pursues you. I am in a hot pursuit of God. I am chasing him down. Your right hand upholds me. I love the King James Version, version of this verse. Yes, you heard me right. We're reading the King James today. Amen, church. Amen. Amen. Sometimes you just need a few good Fs. My soul followeth hard after thee. And the great Christian author uh, Tozier wrote in his book about pursuing God about this psalm. And he used in the, that initial chapter the idea that we follow hard after God, on his heels, as it were. That we don't want to let go of him. And many other modern versions of this psalm translate it, I cling to you. And that's also perfectly valid. And so this idea that I'm, I'm holding on to God... I'm following after him. Some of you have done something like this in your lives in the past. You've been running at full sprint through the airport or a foreign city, and you're trying to catch the cab or the plane, and maybe you had some small children with you. And what do you say to them? You know, follow close. Maybe you even have them hold on to dad's belt as you're all sprinting through the airport, clinging 
and pursuing close behind in hot pursuit so that no one gets left behind. Once, as a young baseball player, we saw hot pursuit played out in real life on the diamond in front of us. My dad was coaching our young YMCA team. We had 9 to 12-year-olds. And another team had ruled the league for several years. It came out later. Some things are hard to let go. It came out later that they had had overage kids playing on their team for a number of years. And so we are literally facing the Giants, kids that are overaged and outsized. And we were playing them very well, and we had a chance to win the championship, and it's a close game. And my brother, he was 9 or 10 at the time, managed to get a walk, and he's on first base. He was batting at the end of the lineup, and if you know much of anything about baseball, that's usually because uh, you put the best hitters near the front, the guys who were fast. And the next hitter up is our best player. His name was also Josh. It wasn't me, but it was a friend of mine. He was fast. This field didn't have fences. We played on a lot in which, essentially, if you could hit it deep, the ball would keep rolling. And so Josh gets up, and he has a great hit, and the ball is rolling past the outfielders, and people are screaming and yelling, and the game is, I think we were down by one, and so the, the game is so close, and everybody's yelling at my brother, you know, run! And my brother was most famous that year for the way in which he played outfield. A few times, my dad had to call out to him to stand up because he was sitting on the ground picking wild strawberries and eating them. And so he's young. His legs were short and thick, and he wasn't known for great speed. And he is chugging around the bases with all of his effort. And to those watching, it looks like a video in slow motion. We're all on our feet. We're cheering. You can imagine the way the moms and the dads are cheering. We've got a chance to topple the Giants. And here comes young Eric around third base, chugging oh so slow. And Josh, hot pursuit on his heels. Eric reaches home plate and steps on it. Josh Crabb slides between his legs for the winning run. Afterwards... When my brother was interviewed, not by the press, but by my father at lunch, about how he felt about the play, he said, I was running as if a cheetah was after me. <laughs> and the whole church says, Amen. My soul, God, desires to follow hard after you, to leave it all on the field, to give it my best, to show you my love by both accepting your grace and by trying to be the person that you've created me to be. And one of the problems that we face as a church is that the pursuit of Christ, this hot pursuit of God, has been deterred by the modern notion of accepting Christ. This sounds like the most backward thing that you could hear in church, that there's a problem with accepting Christ. And of course, you need to understand I'm not saying that you shouldn't receive Jesus. I'm just saying that our terminology sometimes betrays a shift in our intentions. I don't even think there's a problem with saying that I accept Christ or that I accepted Him. It's really more the idea. The idea that my responsibility as a follower of God is simply to say, here I am, Jesus, I accept you. Jesus is moving ahead. His face is set 
towards Jerusalem. His face is set, figuratively of course, towards obedience and moving towards God. And when we stand around and say, we will accept him, sometimes our language betrays that we think that the most important thing about Christianity is to receive his grace, to receive his forgiveness, and not to pursue him with a hot desire. And so we want both. We want to accept him, and we want to pursue him. There's a New Testament word that mirrors this Old Testament concept. It's a Greek word. They're not necessarily related. It's from a different language. But in the New Testament, it means this, to seek with diligence. It doesn't mean to seek with diligently. To seek with diligence. Hot pursuit on God's heels. And here's a few examples of this word as it plays out in the New Testament. In the book of Acts 15, verses 16 and 17, we read this, a reminder from Old Testament prophecy. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. God promises there will be a day of renewal and the kingship's going to be restored. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. The reason for this restoration, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, so that the rest of the peoples in the earth can also have the opportunity to pursue God with diligence, with a hot pursuit, to cling to him, including even the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. Later, Paul will write in the book of Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, Again, quoting Old Testament prophecy. No one is wise. No one is seeking God. No one is after him in hot pursuit. Why the problem? We haven't had an opportunity to preach on every passage in the New Testament that speaks about cheap grace and about legalism and about the balance that the church needs. Last week we chose several of those passages, but Romans chapter 3 discusses the same problem. Earlier in the chapter, Paul writes that some are using grace as an excuse to sin more. But by the time he's finished chapter 3, he reminds us that the law and all of its rule following could not produce the type of result that God desired, the love of God that was needed and right in the middle of those two extremes, we see Paul using this word again. No one is wise. No one is seeking God. What would be the corrective for our imbalance if we could learn to love him with this kind of clinging? If we could learn the kind of love that receives grace and wants to do better? When I grew up in a small northern church, a pretty conservative church, I was once invited to come to a men's business meeting. Men's business meetings were the way that churches that didn't have a lot of elders or enough elders to take care of all of the jobs would get all of the men involved so that they could dole out different tasks and come to an agreement on how money should be used and so on. And at one of those early meetings, a formative time in my life, I remember a disagreement between one elder and another group of elders and men in that church. 
in which the one elder was arguing, for what reasons I don't know, that the love of God isn't really necessary for salvation. But all that is necessary or all that is promised is that if we will obey, we get saved. And the other men sensed that even though this might have been correct in some analytical way of reading Scripture, that there was something missing and they were arguing that, yes, a love of God is necessary. And the first man argued again, you can't make anyone love anyone. How could anyone be saved? And nevertheless, the other men in the room said, we believe that you've got to learn to love God. The disciples once asked Jesus something similar, and he said to them, with, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Even you and I can learn whether we've never had it or whether we've lost it to feel something inside for him again. It is not beyond our reach. There are times when you don't feel the love that you ought to for your spouse. And how do you find it again? Through serving, through diligence, through acts of love, until the feeling returns. There's times when I'm sure parents don't feel everything they think they ought to about their children. We don't feel everything we think we ought to about our friends. When emotions seem to elude us, and our church tradition, our faith tribe, the churches of Christ, has a history of hanging out very far on the side. Where instead of asking people to pursue God with passion, sometimes we have settled for simple obedience. And we're trying to regain and hold both. In Hebrews 12, the author writes this. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. This is, of course, the story about Esau. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So many times this example of pursuit was the only one that we heard in our preaching. That if you're not careful, you will come to a place where you will seek salvation with tears and be unable to receive it again. Well, guess what? This is our New Testament word. This is the hot pursuit. He's crying out with hot tears to get something back that he has lost. But the author of Hebrews also wrote that we don't believe that this is your condition. We are not the kind of people who shrink back, but we're the ones who press forward and are saved. Amen, church? And so the Hebrews author also can write this, without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, diligently seek him, cling to his belt in the trials of life and pursue him with a hot pursuit. Amen, church. Amen. And so we'll end here today at 1 Peter 1, verse 10. I wish that I had time this morning to read 1 Peter 1 for you, but I do not. And so I would challenge you to read it today. Read it together as a family or listen to it in your audio Bible. 1 Peter 1 captures a picture of people who, in spite of life's hardships, are hot in pursuit of God. And this verse captures the heart of it. When Peter, a disciple of Jesus, one who had walked in his literal footsteps, 
and was training others who couldn't literally follow him to still follow after him. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, the grace that you now have, searched intently and with great care. They poured their lives in the old world, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, to find what you now have. They gave it their all. He'll go on to say, even angels long to look into and understand this grace that you have. And church, when we hold grace in one hand and discipleship in the other, our heart becomes a heart of love. We can fulfill the scripture that Grady read to us today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And that will teach us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen, church. Amen. Let's stand together as we're about to sing the invitation song. We'll have shepherds at the front and the back to receive you for prayer. If you need to pray with anyone today for any reason. And let us, your shepherds and ministers at this church, encourage you in the diligent pursuit of